If you have Bibles with you, open them up to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is going to be our primary text, specifically beginning of verse 16 is where we're going to look. Uh, We are going to get back to our series, Kingdom Living, but it'll be the week after Easter that we get back to that. So um, this week, uh, being Resurrection Sunday with next week, one of the things that I determined is that it would be good to focus on what made the resurrection necessary was the death of Christ and what made the death of Christ necessary. And so that's what we're going to cover this morning uh, together in our time in God's Word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you once again for this opportunity for the chance that we have to worship you. May our time in your word draw us closer to you. May your spirit do his work on our souls as we read. God, we praise you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It was in May of 1946 in a tucked away corner of the earth called Los Alamos, a young daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific at Bikini. He had successfully performed such an experiment many times before in his effort to determine the amount of U-235 necessary for a chain reaction, scientists call it critical mass. He would push two hemispheres of uranium together, then just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped and instantly the room was filled with a dazzling blue haze. Young scientist Louis Slotin, instead of ducking and thereby possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands and thus interrupted the chain reaction. In a daring move, Slotin saved the lives of seven other people in the laboratory. As he waited for the car that was to take them uh, to the hospital, he said quietly and reassuringly to a friend, you'll come through it all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. And nine days later, his prediction came true. He died as a result of being exposed. The Bible declares this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 2,000 years ago, Jesus left a perfect environment in heaven, and he came to a world that was contaminated by sin. He took on flesh for you and I, and he himself became contaminated by sin so that you and I could have the exchange of his righteousness. As we look at these verses this morning, it's going to kind of open a few things up for us. But before we begin to dig into the passage, what we've got to do is get a little bit of the background. Jesus was arrested after being betrayed by a close friend. From that point, Jesus went on to endure many trials and mockery. He would be beaten and and, um, right before where we read of have a crown of thorns thrust down on his head. From the trial to the crucifixion, he endured a lot. I think the movie The Passion of the Christ kind of accurately depicted what took place. And, and I'm not sure about you guys, but the very first time I saw that movie, many of those times I, I had to turn my head away or just look down and not watch because of the brutality that was there. Jesus was mocked, not just beaten as well, the Bible declares. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put put his own clothes on him. And they led him out 
to crucify him. Uh, imagine for a moment the pain and the anguish that Jesus must have been going through. Uh, if you've seen that movie, you understand that his flesh was ripped open. He was beaten to the point of death. And, and if those things weren't painful enough, the very one who spoke the universe into existence, right? Do you remember what John says at the beginning of his gospel? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Well, not only did they not receive him, they rejected him to the point of beating him and mocking him and spitting on him. So let's pick that up right there from John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, he being the governor Pilate. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Gogotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, by standing, but standing by the cross of Jesus was, were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He started off that text with a few simple words. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. You know, the more I read the Bible and the more I study, the more I'm surprised that the cross has ever become a symbol for the Christian faith at all. As a matter of fact, the cross didn't become a symbol for the Christian faith for quite a few centuries. It wasn't until the fourth century when it became uh, a symbol of the faith. Before that, it was the, the, the fish because of its name in Greek represented Christ. Or uh, before that, which this is going to be hard for a guy with, with a lisp to say, he was a shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulder. <laughs> so just say that a few times really fast when you have a lisp. 
But somewhere the cross became this instrument, right, that we looked at and we, we hang it around our, our necks, we put it on our shirts, we even get tattoos of the cross. And, and crucifixion, man, it was brutal. It was invented by the Persians 400 years before the time of Christ. And, and originally what they did, what the Persians did, is they, they took a stake and put it in the ground and then they sharpened that stake uh, and then they would drag, get, grab somebody and draw them out by all fours. And so if you've seen... Uh, um, the, the Braveheart movie, that's being drawn and quartered. They would draw, draw them out like that, and what, the, what would they would do is take the person and they would put them over top of that stake that was on a point, and, and the stake would be right against their sternum, and then they would drop them so the stake would go all the way up through and, and protrude out of the throat, thus killing the victim instantly. Well, the Romans, being so brutal, decided that that crucifixion was too simple, and so they devised this way to crucify somebody that brought about the agony, and that's what we now know as the cross. And, and from this way of crucifying people, what they would do is they would scourge or scourge the person. They would beat them most of the times, a lot of the times, not most of the time. People wouldn't even make it out of that beating. And if they did make it out of that beating, they would be taken to the place of crucifixion and they would be have their arms stretched out and they would be nailed to a cross. Now, our pictures that we typically see of Christ and, and the crucifixion would have the, the nail mark right here. Actually, the body wouldn't be able to withstand that. Actually, the place that the nail would have to go through would be here in the wrist, just below or above, depending on how you're looking at it, that complex set of bones in your wrists between the ulna and the other bone. I forgot the name of it. It's on my notes. You know what I'm talking about, the two bones there. So they would drive that spike in between there uh, because those bones and the complex set of bones there to hold up your wrist were able to hold the body up on a cross. But here's what would happen with that. As soon as they would drive that spike in there, there's a nerve that runs all the way up here that would send an intense pain all the way through the shoulder and, and into the shoulder blade. And, and not only that, as soon as that nerve would be severed, the hands would claw up and would not be able to be straightened out. So that was the, the first part of that. And then the next thing they did is they uh, would nail the feet to the cross. And, and many people think that the, the nail was put together. They'd take the feet and just drive it right through the ankle bones. But actually, there is one uh, person they found, one body that had been crucified that they found. The reason there's only one, well, when somebody would have been crucified, they simply took their body off the cross and threw it in a pile behind where they were crucifying. So they weren't buried in graves. But one was a man by the name of Johanan. And they found it interesting that when they were able to uh, look at his body, that there was still a spike on his feet or on one of his feet. And the reason was because that spike bent and it was too much work to take that spike out. And what they actually did with that spike is they would take it through the heel and, and, and nail it in. And so it's believed by many or some that the feet would have been somewhat like this and spikes driven through the heels of the victim that was being crucified. So what was it that killed a victim on the cross? Sometimes just mere shock killed a victim. They would go have a heart attack, cardiac arrest from the pain and other things. But, but if they lasted that, victims could last for days upon the cross. Uh, I, I think they said, uh, if I remember reading right, that one, the longest victim was uh, near seven days, uh, one commentator writer said on the cross. So what killed a victim on the cross was they would actually end up drowning in their own fluid because as the body would slump on the cross, and, may, and maybe you've experienced this some of yourself, have you ever sat for a long period of time, kind of slumped over, and then all of a sudden you're having a hard time breathing? Well, the body, the lungs begin to fill up with fluid at that point. 
And so in order to prolong that, the, the natural response of the body for a victim on the cross would be to pull up on those spikes in the wrists, shooting pain throughout the body, push up on the spikes on your heels, suck in a breath of air, and then fall back down again. This is why when you read the Bible, it says that the, the day of the Passover was coming and they didn't want the victims to live too long there. So they actually broke the bones of the, the people that were there. But when they came to Jesus, he, his bones weren't broken because he had already passed away. He was in charge of his own death. And so this is how a victim would die on the cross. They would, they would lose all ability to be able to push themselves up or pull themselves up, take in that air. Their lungs would fill up with fluid and they would literally drown because of that. So my question, not just my question, a question so many people have about the cross is why was that necessary? I mean, Jesus had to die, right, for, for, for us. But why couldn't he have died some other way? Why, why couldn't he have been just taken out by a hitman? Why couldn't something else have taken place uh, some other time before? They tried to kill him at different times, but they couldn't. The angry mobs couldn't kill him. They couldn't because why? Well, Jesus had to die on a cross. Why? Why was the cross necessary? And, and that's what I want to attempt to answer the rest of our time together this morning. The first reason the cross was necessary is because of sin. It's necessary because of sin. The Bible teaches us that a God is holy and just. And being holy and just, God cannot have a relationship with sinful humanity. It reminds us time and time again of just how who we are. And here's the thing. Let's be honest about this for a few moments. Do we really need the Bible to tell us this? Do we really need the Bible to tell us that we have done wrong? Right? Fact is, is that we don't need the Bible. When we try to measure up our own morality against ourselves, we even know we don't measure up to our own standards. You know, and that was the struggle of Paul, but the Bible does say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A, a quick reading of the Greek and in trying to understand what the word all means. I'm being sarcastic. It's all. Every one of us fall into that category. There's not a person that's ever walked the face of this planet that's not a sinner. Every single person has sinned. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us if we try to claim we've not sinned, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what he says there in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. The truth of the matter is, is that we have all sinned. And instead of seeing our sins according to God, we see them according to the sins of others, right? Don't we do that? Don't we measure our sins by the sins of others? And, and don't we categorize sin in such a way like, well, you know, a white lie is not as bad as stealing and stealing is not as bad as murder. So we, we do that so often. But the fact of the matter is, is that even in the Old Testament, yes, there are differences for sin, right? Some sins in the Old Testament, people were to be taken outside of the camp and stoned to death. But for every sin that was, was made in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice that needed to be made. Every one of them, the white lie, the stealing, the murder, the adultery, every one of them, a sacrifice would have to be made. Sin separates us from God. God looks at all sin in the same manner. As a matter of fact, it's because of all sin that Jesus Christ had to die upon the cross. Do you remember what Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden for? I mean, everybody knows that story, right? They didn't murder anybody. There wasn't anything to steal. Everything was theirs anyway. 
Right? There weren't any people competing for their affection, and so there was no, no uh, morality struggles as far as other people. You know what it was? God told them not to eat of one fruit, and they ate of that one fruit. If nothing else, what that should tell us, that story should tell us, or that account should tell us, is how serious God looks at sin. If Adam and Eve could be separated for all of eternity, or kicked out of the Garden of Eden, if they could be separated for eating one piece of fruit, how serious does God take our sin? Look at the cross. That's our answer. Look at the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, the first part of it, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. There's nothing more touching in all of humanity than for someone to sacrifice themselves for a cause or for a friend. James Packer writes these words. Well, he quotes Martin Luther, and then there's a little he writes after that. And quoting Martin Luther, he said, All the prophets did foresee in the spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc. That ever was or could be in all the world. For he, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, is not now an innocent person and without sins, but a sinner. His, our sin was put on him. He, of course, taking, talking about the imputing of our wrongdoing to Christ, as our substitute, Luther continues, Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of man, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner that did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly, Be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. Here now comes the law, and saith, I find him a sinner, therefore let him die upon the cross. And so he setteth upon him, and killeth him. By this means the whole world is purged and cleansed from all of our sins. And Packer writes these, these words. The presentation of the death of Christ as the substitute exhibits the love of the cross more richly, fully, gloriously, and glowingly than any other account of it. Luther saw this and gloried in it. He once wrote to a friend, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. What a great and wonderful exchange. How did Christ do that? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. Think about this for a moment. Think about it. Let, let it kind of sink in, right? Jesus became guilty of our sin. Let's, let's remove that for a few moments from the corporate aspect of that because it's so easy to kind of corporately come together and say, yes, we're all a bunch of sinners. And let's really start to think about this for a few moments. You know, because the truth of the matter is, is that revival is not going to come into our nation, into our world, until we as a church understand exactly what took place on the cross. And not only that we understand what took place on the cross, but it becomes our marching orders. Much like Paul would declare, right? When I came among you, I simply knew nothing but Christ. Christ crucified. We've muddied this whole thing up because the fact of the matter is, is that we all know. We know what Christ died for. And when I think of what Christ died for, the lying, the stealing, the lusting, the alcoholism, the drugs, when I think of what he died for, it amazes me. That's what 
the cross was necessary for. For every single one of us. For you and for I. There are many who believe that they're too far gone for the grace of God. Can I let you in on a little secret? That's really a form of pride. It's a form of pride. I'm too far, too much of a sinner for God to forgive me, really. You think you're that good of a sinner that even the blood of the creator of the universe couldn't cover it up. Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've got to come to an understanding that our sin does not disqualify us from responding to the cross of Christ. And really, in the church, we've got to stop preaching that way. We've got to stop preaching in such a way that tells the sinner that they're not good enough to come and be a part. Because the only thing that made the cross of Christ necessary was their sin. It's our sin. That's why the cross was necessary. What was the motivation behind the sacrifice? That's the next thing that made the cross necessary. Because of God's love. Because of his love. One afternoon, a bus driver was taking 40 children home from school. As the bus made its way down a steep grade, the brakes failed, and the driver was unable to steer the bus to the left because of a high embankment or to the right because of a steep, steep cliff. And as the bus hurtled down the hill, the driver recalled that there was a narrow gate at the bottom which led into a field, and he decided to steer the bus through the gate and into the field, figuring that it would eventually come to a safe stop. He hoped that no cars or other obstacles would get in his way before he got to the gate. When the bus reached the bottom of the hill, the driver saw the gate approaching fast, but to his horror, he noticed a small child sitting on the gate waving at the bus. It was too late to change his plans now. If the driver tried to avoid the gate, 40 children would die. He cried out in anguish as the bus slammed directly into the gate. The innocent child died instantly in the collision, but the bus and all of its passengers were saved. Emergency vehicles were the first to arrive on scene, followed shortly by relief parents and grandparents. Many of them wanted to show their appreciation and gratitude to the driver who kept the bus under control long enough to save their children, but he was nowhere to be found. They asked the officer where he had gone. They'd taken him to the hospital, the officer said. He's suffering from severe shock. Well, that's understandable, they replied. No, you don't understand. The little boy on the fence was his own son. So Jesus became a perfect example of that very thing. And it frustrates the snot out of me to see people take God's word and twist it in such a way to try to declare God as some vengeful, hateful old grandfather in the sky waiting to smite people. And he loves us. He loves us. How can we not look at the cross and see that? I mean, I think about my own kids, and, and right now, if my phone, you know, it's, oh, it's, I usually have it with me. I left it down there because I use it to record. Uh, if my own phone were to buzz and it was one of my children and say, Dad, I need you, I would have a hard time not walking out of this pulpit and going to help them. As a matter of fact, I probably would. Say, somebody else come up and finish the notes. They're right here. And here Jesus is on the cross and thinking about that moment, right? He's, he, he's suffering. He's in pain. He even cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he even knows the answer. He knows the answer. 
You see, because it was not just a commitment to be obedient to God's will that kept Jesus on a cross. And I think that's one of the things we forget. Actually, obedience is never enough. Have you ever realized that? If you try to stay faithful to God just out of sense of obedience, before too long, you're going to stop being obedient. But when you love him and you love others, it's easy to be obedient. You know what kept Jesus on the cross even after crying those moments of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's love. We know the words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. So love the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Man, isn't that a thought? When all the people try to twist this word to say what it doesn't say, even when well-meaning but dogmatic Christians just want to shout the world down because of their sin, remember these words. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Through him. He loved. I've heard of extreme love, but this takes the cake. He loves us so much that he's willingly allowed Jesus to endure the suffering on the cross to redeem us back to himself. This is why it amazes me, right? When anybody tries to declare that there's more ways to heaven than Jesus Christ. (laughs) No, there's not. He would not have let Jesus suffer on the cross if it was any other way. God, when we're at our lowest and most wicked state, this is what happened. But God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. If that passage is not enough, look at what the Bible declares in Ephesians. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that, right? Those words, leave those words up there for us a moment. The, the length, the height, the breadth, the depth. So let's just picture that, right? That's the love of Christ or the love of God for every single one of us. And Paul writes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians, that you may know. And this knowing is not just this head knowledge, right? It's the kind of knowledge that you feel in here. That's right from here. That carries you through every struggle. That carries you through everything. That you know, you know that God loves you. Right? And that love doesn't stop when you accept the cross of Christ. As a matter of fact, when you dig through the rest of Romans chapter 5, when he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Read it. There's another phrase in there. How much more? How much more will he love those who are in Christ? I'm paraphrasing that right there. But his love holds us. It carries us through all things. That's what made the cross of Christ necessary. God's love for the sinner made it necessary. This is one that I have a hard time fully comprehending. I can, I can fully grasp it in my thinker, but sometimes I have a hard time grasping it in my feeler. Because if I'm honest, man, I could do a lot for other people. I could. I could give myself for a lot of other people. But I'm not offering up Taylor or Preston or CJ or Delaney or Jameson or Dominic or Tate 
I'm not offering up any of them for you guys. But God did. He did. The last reason the cross is necessary. It's because of heaven. It's because of heaven. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. If I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What makes us die? What makes us die? Well, really, I mean, just the, the, the first answer is when God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so that they could no longer reach out and eat from the tree of life because God didn't want them to live for eternity in that state. Right? And we know as we read through the Bible that the last thing that we're going to see restored is that tree of life that's going to be there, so, so being removed there. But what caused that? It's sin. A holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful man, and our flesh is tainted by sin. And so something else happened on the cross. We read the first part of the verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, right? So that in him, there's a typo up there, in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So the cross became necessary so that God could exchange the sinful flesh with imperishable flesh on that moment that he returns, on the moment the second, of, second coming of Christ takes place. How did we all become sinners? Well, we inherited the sinful nature from our father, Adam. Understand this, we didn't inherit his guilt, but that sinful nature, Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The cross of Christ is indeed a gruesome thing, but it was necessary. It was necessary because of our sin, because of God's love. And because of eternity. Now, here's what I don't want us to grasp. And this is what I'm preaching next week on Resurrection Sunday. That's not the end of it, right? Jesus just didn't die so that we could have a hope of heaven one day. He died so that changes could be made in us today. Next week, what we're going to focus in on is what the resurrected life in Christ looks like. The Bible does give us a mirror that we can look into and so we can understand that I've put my faith in Christ. He sealed me with his Holy Spirit. So what does that mean for me now? That's what we're going to look at next week. But today, here's what I want us to grasp and think about this week because we're going to have images and, and different things all throughout the week talking about Easter, talking about the cross of Christ. And I want you to remember what made the cross of Christ necessary was our sin. Reflect on it. Understand it. There's not a single person that's not guilty of it. What made the cross of Christ necessary was the love of God. And if you're in the room this morning and you think, well, my sin's too much, it's not. 
God loves you just the way he's loved every single other person. What made the cross of Christ necessary is that one day Christ is going to return and, and we're going to exchange this perishable mortal body for immortality. And that's that great exchange that's going to take place. But today, let me ask you a question before I close. Has the cross became necessary for you? Have you responded to that truth? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All can be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. What's keeping you today from taking that step? One final passage before I pray for us. Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. And so if you're in here this morning and you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, no, Jesus is coming back. I don't want to be like the rest of the people and say, just be an alarmist to say, look at the news, because we, we can say for centuries to look at the news. He is coming back. Are you ready for him? Do you know of his great love for you? He knows of your sin and died for it. He of all people knows of it. And he's just waiting on you to accept that in faith. To believe that you're a sinner and you need his covering. To confess him to be the Lord of your life. To repent of a life that's led you away from him. To submit yourself to Christian baptism. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after that, to begin to chase a righteousness that you'll never get here on this earth but that he's preparing for you. What's keeping you from responding today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love you give us and the grace we have in Christ. We thank you for the truth of your word and the great reminders that we have over and over from it. Lord, as we consider the cross and the brutality that we find there, may it be the thing that helps us to see more clearly just how evil our sin is. And get a clear grasp, God, of that is that what separates us from you. But more importantly, God, to see just how powerful your love is for every single person. That there's that opportunity that all could be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So God, we thank you for the cross. We pray your spirit does his work in our souls right now. And if there be a, be a soul in the room that needs to respond to Christ for the first time, may today be the day they take that step to cross over from death to life in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. If you need